I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I had the most gorgeous lady came into my office one afternoon. She must have been in her 70s, and she was literally dressed to the nines. So she had the makeup, she had the jewelry, <laughs> and, you know, and, I, and I said to her, I said, you know, why, why would you want to donate your body? And she looked at me and she said, quite frankly, young woman, she said, this is just too good to burn. And I thought, you know, I, I love the fact that when you get closer to your own hole in the ground, you look at your mortality with that sense of humour. And I said to her, yep, it is far too damn good to burn. <laughs> That's Sue Black. Sue is a forensic anthropologist who spent an extraordinary career among the dead. She's concerned with how forensic scientists communicate with juries. And as a brilliant forensic scientist herself, she's helped solve some horrendous crimes, including the massacres in Kosovo. She's also one of the most empathic people I've ever met. And she's a great storyteller. This is really great to be talking with you again. I've, I've enjoyed our talks in times past. Here you are, a world expert in this field that we haven't really talked about much on the show, if I don't think ever, forensic anthropology. You've examined a lot of cadavers in your life. Do you remember your first one? Oh gosh, yes. I think I think everybody does because it's it's a Rubicon that you have to cross. And that first time when you walk into a dissecting room and the, the big dissecting room we had in Aberdeen University had about 50 or nearly 60 glass tables with a body on each table and each body covered by a white sheet. And you walk into that room as an 18-year-old and it's really very daunting because it's not just what you see, it's what you smell as well because it's it's the embalming fluid. And then somehow you've got to find the courage to pull back the sheet to see a dead body, often for the first time you've ever seen a dead body, let alone been in a room full of it. And then you're expected to try and put a fiddly little blade onto a scalpel handle without cutting your own fingers. And then you're expected to cut through human skin. And it's terrifying. And your, your fear before you start is almost crippling. But the minute you start to peel the skin back and you start to see all the wonders that are underneath, the most important thing is you forget to be scared. But it never leaves you. That first moment never, ever leaves you. And I get the impression from your book that there's a tremendous amount of respect for the dead body, for the cadaver, that you want the students to feel. You want them to, to have this sense of respect. I didn't know until until I was reading your stuff that you actually interview people before they give permission to have their bodies used for uh, teaching? It's, it's not quite an interview, like, like you know, you, you, you pass and therefore you get the job. It's not, it's not quite, <laughs> quite like that. Some people it's don't more ever... Like, more <laughs> like, yes, we want your body. Next. <laughs> well, you know, some people don't want to meet you, which is absolutely fine, and I get that. But some yeah. people do. Some want to come in and talk to you. 
and they want to to understand what it is you're going to do and why it's important that they do it. And that's a really, it's a really personal moment because this is somebody, whilst they're alive, putting something in train that has no benefit to them at all, only to the recipient. So they're saying, when I die, I'm leaving my body solely for the reason that you can learn. And nobody ever gives you a gift like that. They really don't. That in your, in your lifetime, you're thinking about in your death, somebody else benefiting from it. And for our young people who go into dissection, whether they're medical students, dental students, or scientists, we think it's really important that they understand why people choose to donate their body, but also what benefits they will receive from it, and that it's not something that they can take for granted. What What are some of the reasons people have for donating their bodies? Is it personal illness in the family or a general sense of altruism? What do you find is common? Um, there are a lot of reasons. So for some individuals, it may have been that they wanted to be doctors or scientists in their own life and, and they were never able to do it. So this is their way of, of taking part in that field. Uh, some may be inordinately grateful for what a doctor or a surgeon has been able to do for them or their family in their lives. And this is their way of paying back. But I've, I've had lovely reasons. I had an, the most gorgeous lady came into my office one afternoon. She must have been in her 70s and she was literally dressed to the nines. So she had the makeup, she had the jewellery. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, and I said to her, I said, you know, why, why would you want to donate your body? And she looked at me and she said, quite frankly, young woman, she said, this is just too good to burn. And I thought, <laughs> you know, I, I love the fact that when you get closer to your own hole in the ground, you look at your mortality with that sense of humour. And I said to her, yep, it is far too damn good to burn. Uh, oh, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> what about you? What made you get into this? Why were you comfortable enough with this? You you had a, had a background of dealing with dead things before you, before you started working on dead people. I, I did. So so my maiden my maiden name is Gunn, and Gunn is a good northeast of Scotland surname. And of course, my father just happened to be a really good shot. And so any opportunity um, to go out shooting with my father, he, he never trusted me with the guns, but he would shoot rabbits and pigeons and deer, anything that, that would go into the pot because we lived in a, a very rural part of Scotland. And because I loved being with my father so much that I'd take any opportunity to go out with him. So from the age of, you know, six or seven, I would carry home the rabbits or the pheasants or, or whatever he'd brought home. And my mother was a bit squeamish. And so I would sit out at the back door with my father, plucking the pheasants or, you know, gutting the rabbits or grilliching a deer, as we call it, and never thought anything of the fact that this was a dead body and I was, you know, fundamentally dissecting it at a young age. Because for me, it was a normal process. My father shot it, we prepared it, my mother cooked it, and I liked eating it. And so it, it just seemed perfectly normal. So and now then, you leave out that last step, I hope. <laughs> yes, we do, trust me. Um, and then when I was 12, and my father is a, he was a really good Scottish Presbyterian. He turned to me when I was about 12 and he said, what job are you going to get? 
And I thought he meant when I left school, he meant no, at 12. Because <laughs> at 12, you need to understand and develop a work ethic. And that's the classic Scottish Presbyterian way. And so I thought, well, I don't know what kind of a job I can do. But all my friends were working in fashion stores or, you know, pharmacies or, you know, jewellery or makeup or those sorts of things. And uh, a friend of my family said, well, you know, you can have a job in the butcher shop. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. So at the age of 12, I started working in the butcher shop. But of course, I knew my way around knives and dead animals and that sort of thing. So it seemed perfectly normal. And then when I went to university, I knew I wanted to do something in the sort of biological world. And I went through zoology and, you know, psychology and chemistry and all the sorts of subjects that you do. And none of them really captured my attention. But then when somebody said, have you thought about anatomy? Well, I thought, you know, the dissecting room is just like the butcher shop. It's a different animal, but it's still about muscle and blood and bone and viscera. It's not that different. So I, I just felt it was a very, very natural step to go from the rabbits to the butcher shop to the dissecting room. That's a progression that most of us wouldn't have encountered. And it led eventually to your being this world-class authority on forensic anthropology and so well-regarded in, in your own country that you just got made a baroness, right? That's true, yes. It's very, it's very surreal. What is a baroness? I know you were a dame before, but you, you'll always be my, one of my favorite dames. Oh, but, but I, I always want to be, because there's nothing like a dame, and I am nothing like a dame. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what, what, what's a baroness? I thought you had to be uh, born to it. No. So, so um, the, the, the dame bit... Um, is part of an honours system. And so I was very fortunate to be granted, first of all, an, an OBE, which is an Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty, um, following my work in Kosovo. And then with my work in Dundee, um, I was upgraded to a DBE, which is the Dame bit. So it's part of a, a recognition order. And you have the medal and you go to Buckingham Palace and you meet the Queen and she presents it to you. But... Um, the, the ennoblement is, is a different thing. So that, a bit like you, we have two houses in our government. We have the House of Commons, which is where our elected MPs sit and deal with legislation. And we have an upper house in our government, which is the House of Lords. And some people are, are born into the title, so that's a hereditary title. Some people... Um, are moved into the House of Lords because of their particular association with a political party, or some are brought into or invited into the House because of their area of expertise. And they often become what are called cross-benchers because they sit between the benches of the two parties. And so I was invited into the House of Lords as a cross-bench peer. And once you're in the House of Lords, if you're a gentleman, you become a lord or a baron. And if you're, a, if you're a lady, you become a lady or a baroness. And so I've been made a baroness. You mentioned Kosovo as uh, one of the factors that brought you some of this uh, great recognition. What, what was your role there? Did you help convict uh, Milosevic? 
So our, our job is as forensic scientists, but as particularly as forensic anthropologists, is to is that somebody is indicted for a crime, whether it was Milosevic, Karadzic, Mladic, or, or many of the others. And if they are indicted for a crime, there needs to be evidence in the court that supports that accusation. And so our job as forensic scientists was to find the evidence, collect the evidence, analyse the evidence, and then present the evidence to the court. And then, of course, the court decides on guilt or innocence. What was some of the evidence that you found? Was it was it related to what, the identity of the victims or how they died or what? Yeah. So, I mean, if I take you to the first crime scene, because um, the, the British forensic team was the first team to go into Kosovo at the request of the United Nations. And we traveled to the second largest city in Kosovo down in the southwest, which is called Prizren. And in February of 1999, there was a refugee train uh, a walking train, a train of people, um, walking through Kosovo, heading towards the Albanian border. And as they were passing through the area, the men were separated from the women and children. And the men were taken to an outhouse, and there were 44 men that were herded into this outhouse. They were separated into two rooms, and a gunman stood at the door of each room and sprayed the room with Kalashnikov fire. Everybody died except one man, and he managed, he was the man who was in the corner of the room first. So all of his friends, his family that were standing in front of him, they effectively shielded him from the bullets. What then happened was that two accomplices stood at the windows of the building, they threw in straw, they threw in petrol, and they torched the building. And they torched the building to such an extent that the roof tiles fell in. So the survivor had to lie underneath the dead bodies of the people he knew that were burning above him because he knew if he came out, then he would be shot as well. But the very fact that he survived meant that he had witness testimony. And so he gave his testimony to the investigators and he said, this is what happened. Our job as a scientist is to go in collect and analyse the evidence that we see. And if it matches with the witness eye testimony, then what we have is a really strong chain of evidence. So we're coming into that crime scene, must have been about six months after the event. And what we were able to say is they were all men. And this fitted with what the witness was saying. So all of the, the bodies that we have are men. But bear in mind, we've had six months of decomposition, sometimes in 38 degree heat. So the bodies decompose rapidly. They're all jumbled together. They're co-mingled in the room. They're badly decomposed. They're, they're a mass of boiling maggots just in terms of the decomposition activity. And They've what been, about the burning? What, what about well, the burned bodies? Yeah. Well, they're partly burnt as well. And also they're partly submerged under the roof tiles. And when the refugees left, they didn't take their dogs with them. So the dogs are roaming around as wild packs of dogs. And this mm. is a food source for them. So we have human bodies mixed together, badly decomposed, partly burnt, partly buried, partly disturbed by animals. And our job is to go in to that room and move forward inch by inch identifying every piece of evidence that might be used to establish what happened in that room. 
is there gunfire? Yes, there was. And we could see on the walls of the building where the pock marks were, where the gun, the bullets had gone in, and we could retrieve the bullets. We could tell that it was um, a random sort of spray of automatic fire because these weren't one-point executions to a head. You could see that it had been sprayed across the room. And everything that the witness had said he saw and happened, we were able to confirm by our evidence. And our evidence then goes into the courtroom alongside that witness for the, the prosecutors to be able to say, this is what happened, this is why this person needs to be held to account. When you described moving through that crime scene inch by inch, I was trying to imagine what it must have been like for you and your colleagues. The, the, what we were talking about in terms of respect for the cadaver involves a certain amount of empathy. And can you actually move through a, a death scene like that inch by inch and not turn off your empathy for your own survival? It's a really good question, and it's one that's asked of, of almost every professional in the forensic field, is how do you cope? How do you manage to, to lead a normal life when much of your professional life is really dealing with the worst that humanity can, can meter out against itself? And I was very, very well schooled by uh, a head of CID, Criminal Investigation Department, of a, a force in Scotland when I started to do the forensic work. And Charlie Hepburn said to me, first of all, he gave me advice and said, don't do this, he said, because if you do this, you'll never be the same and you'll never get all of these images out of your head. And he said, but I know that you're a redheaded, stubborn woman and you're probably going to do it anyway, so let me give you a piece of advice. And his, his advice to me has stuck with me from day one, and I think it's what has helped me. He said, you need to understand, this is not your guilt to own. You didn't create this. You couldn't have stopped it. It's not your fault. So first of all, don't own it. And then you need to accept that the only reason you're there is because you have a skill set that somebody needs to get this job done. It's not your job to find somebody innocent or guilty. It's not your job to empathize with them. It's not your job to make it your, your drive and your passion to make it better. All you have to do is find the evidence, recover the evidence, analyze the evidence, and present the evidence. And if you can keep your involvement to those four things, then I think it's the, it's the safest protection for yourself. But it's hard, and I would be lying if I said it always works. It doesn't. When we come back from our break, Sue Black tells me the heart-wrenching story of a time in Kosovo when that advice not to make it personal didn't work. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. 
I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sue Black. We had a, a case in Kosovo, and we were out in a field, and we, we were digging um, the bodies up from the ground. And we knew the background was that it was women and the elderly and the children who were in this group. And the children had been separated from the adults, and then they were told to go and run to their mothers. And the gunmen used the children as target practice. And we knew this was what had happened. So oh we knew God. if any site was going to be traumatic for us, it was going to be this one. And I can remember I was kneeling on the ground with a, a plastic sheet in front of me and a little body of, of just a, a little girl. She must have been about six. And she was wearing her pajamas and her little red Wellington boots. And, and I was just about to start the process. And I looked up and all I could see in front of me was a group a complete row of Wellington boots. So the policemen were all standing in front of me in a row. And I, I sort of looked up and thought, what's going on? Why have they formed this sort of barricade in front of me? And when I looked beyond them, one of their colleagues had made that critical mistake. He'd looked at the child I was working with and he'd transposed the face of his own daughter mm. onto that situation. And he just, he just broke down. He completely broke down. And under those circumstances, you have a team and a team has to stick together and we have to support each other through these difficult times. And the police officers felt their way of supporting him was to barricade him, to, to form a bridge between him and what I was doing. And I disagreed with them. I thought there was a better way. So I took my gloves off and I rolled my suit down around my middle and I went round the back of them and I threw my arms around his neck and I said, cry, you know, just, just let it all out. And he sobbed his heart out, but he knew what he'd done wrong. He'd made it personal. And once you make it personal, you let, you, you put a little chink in your armour and, and we have to try really hard for our own sake not to let that chink of armour be there. Because if we break down, our team is impacted and our team then can't do the job that they're there to do. Now, that doesn't make us cold, but it makes us very focused about what our, our purpose is. And I've been very lucky that I've not had the flashbacks. I don't have any trouble sleeping at night, but I also know that you can't be so arrogant as to think it's not going to come to you because it might. It might be a sound. It might be a smell. It might be something in the future that triggers a memory that sends me down into a spiral of post-traumatic stress. But what I do have are some really good buddies who understand it, and we watch each other. We watch each other very closely. And if we see it in each other, then we'll take action. I was interested when we talked, when we met in Dundee a few years ago, I was very interested in the problems that you have presenting forensic evidence to a jury. Uh, the, the one, the problem I remembered most vividly was 
the jury's uh, tendency to accept evidence based on fingerprints over evidence based on DNA. Do I have that right? Um, I, I think they, the jury tends to believe almost any forensic evidence. Because when, when you talk to the, the barristers or the advocates, they say that, you know, if, if they've got an expert witness coming in and they say they're a statistician, then they can see the jury members just cloud over and they go to sleep because the last thing they want to talk about is statistics and numbers. But mm-hmm. if you tell the jury that a forensic scientist is coming in, they all get very excited mm-hmm. and they, they hold on to literally, you know, every word that the forensic scientist might say. And I think there is an expectation of the public because they watch so much television and they see all these great cases that are solved by forensic science. Of course, what they don't see are the cases that are not solved by it, but they think, oh, there's DNA or there's fingerprints, that that really is important. And it is important, but it's not infallible. And sometimes that's really difficult to get across to the jury because they think, well, if we've got DNA, we must know who it is. But what we don't know about DNA or know very much about is how that DNA from one person transfers to another. So if I come along and put my hand on your shoulder, my DNA is transferred onto your shoulder. That shirt that you're wearing will go home with you. And I'm not suggesting you would, but you might go home tonight and you might commit a crime and my DNA will be at that crime scene because your shirt was at the crime scene, not because I was physically there. Mm. And we don't know how DNA transfers from person to object. We don't know how long it stays on an object. Does that DNA stay on fabric longer than it stays on wood, for example? And contamination as a result is a huge problem. And that contamination element requires us to bring statistics into the courtroom. And that's when we lose our jury, because then they get bored, because they they don't really understand probability, likelihood ratios, Bayes' theorem, all of the statistical supporting mechanism that we need in science to say it's rarely ever black or white. It's usually some form of grey in between. And the statistics tell us whether it's closer to black or closer to white, but it certainly isn't making it black or white. And that's where the real challenge comes. You remind me of a story you tell in the book of a nurse who was accused of a crime. I think it was murder because her fingerprints were found at the scene. She was a police officer. Oh, a police officer, right. And she wasn't there, but there were her, apparently there were her fingerprints. And didn't, didn't, uh, did, didn't the solving of that uh, lead to a change in the law? Yes, it did. So the, there was a murder and the fingerprints were taken at the murder scene as murder of an elderly lady. And there was a fingerprint in blood on one of the door jams. And when they ran the fingerprints, it matched with this police officer. And she said, I was not at that crime scene. I was not there. And they said, yes, you were because your fingerprint was there. And she refused to accept that she had been at the crime scene. And she was prosecuted um, on the basis of the fact of perjury because they said she was telling a lie. It took many, many years um, for her to be able to prove that in fact she had been telling the truth. And where the problem lay 
was not with the fact that fingerprints are different in everyone. They may well be, but the methodology that was used at the time to undertake the comparison was flawed. Mm. It's, it fundamentally said, if you can get 14 points of match, then it's going to be the same fingerprint. Now, she may have had 14 points of match, but it wasn't her fingerprint. And so the research needed to be done to be able to disprove what had become the standard that was accepted by the fingerprint officers. And so from that point forward, they changed the methodology. It doesn't mean that the, the, the principle of fingerprint differences um, is impacted, but the way in which we report it and analyze it and give weight to it had to be readjusted. You mentioned a problem when you don't have fingerprints, you can use the hand. What I don't understand that. How did that work? So this came about, and this is research that that came entirely out of, of my, my team and my department. I'm very proud of them. Back in 2006, we were contacted by the Metropolitan Police in London, and a young girl alleged that her father came into her room at night and he sexually abused her. And she told her mother, and her mother didn't believe her. So what she did, a brave, brave young girl, she left her camera running on her computer at night. And at night, if your camera's running, it flips into infrared mode, near infrared mode. And it means that your camera allows you to see in the dark. And at half past four in the morning, what we see is a hand and a forearm coming into vision and doing exactly what she said was happening to her. She then took that video to the police and accused her father of sexual abuse. So what the Metropolitan Police had was a video where you don't see the person's face. The only bit of their body you see is their hand and their forearm. And they got in touch with us in Dundee and said, is there anything you can do with this? And I thought, I've no idea. I've never done anything like this in my life. I deal with skeletons and dead bodies. But I am an anatomist. And I know that when you take the skin off the hand, that the pattern of veins that you see under, under the skin surface is not the same on your right and your left hand. If you doubt me, have a look at the back of your right hand and the back of your left hand. The vein patterns will be different. Yeah, I'm seeing and, that now, yeah. And it's about the way that's laid down in you as an embryo when you're forming. And when you look at the old anatomy books from the times of Vesalius in the 1500s and onwards, nobody names the veins in the hand because they're too variable. And so what I said to the police was, look, you know, we know the veins are variable. And because this is near infrared light, when that lands on the skin, it interacts with the deoxygenated blood in the veins. And in an infrared image, your veins stand out like black tram lines. So in this video, I had a beautiful image of the perpetrator's veins on their forearm and on their hand. So I said, what we can do is we can compare the pattern of veins in the perpetrator and the pattern of veins in your suspect, which was dad. If they don't match, then I can tell you with 100% certainty, it's not him because your vein pattern doesn't change. But if they're the same, what I can't tell you is the likelihood of it being the same individual because that research has never been done. Hmm. And they decided that they would, they wanted me to do the analysis and we did that and the vein patterns matched perfectly between dad and the perpetrator. So we went to court 
And because this was the first time evidence of this kind had ever been heard in a court, the judge called a voidir, which means that the jury gets sent out of the courtroom and the judge decides whether he's going to allow the evidence to be heard. And he decided because of the huge volume of understanding of anatomy, he would let the evidence be heard. And so I gave my evidence. The jury retired and they came back with a not guilty verdict that mm. it wasn't dad. So of course I was in, in a position of thinking, well, who else was in her room at half past four in the morning with an identical vein pattern, but that's not my job. And when I asked the barrister if we had done something wrong, what she said was what stayed with me from that point forward. She said, no, I don't think you did anything wrong. I don't think they believed the girl. She didn't break down and she didn't cry. She, mm. she was too much in control of herself. Now, this was the most enormously brave young woman who'd accused her father and gone all the way to court with it. And, you know, I felt there's some, there's some questions to be asked and answered here that only science can do. And so we started to look at anatomical variation in the hand and in the forearm. Because when we work on what we call IIOC, indecent images of children, it's a crime where the perpetrator frequently films themselves committing the crime. Mm. When, when you rob a bank, you don't film yourself robbing a bank. But if you're going to abuse a child, you often film yourself doing it because you want to relive the experience. You perhaps want to share it with like-minded people, or it could even become an asset for selling. And it's a contact crime. And the part of the perpetrator that is frequently in contact with a child is their hand. It's other parts of their body sometimes, but frequently it's their hand. So we were starting to get more and more cases coming in of, of indecent abuse of children. And we could see the hand or the forearm of the perpetrator in these images. And the police would have a suspect. And we would undertake the comparison of anatomy between suspect and offender. And over the, gosh, what, 15 years that we've been doing this now, we, we probably do uh, about 50, 50 to 60 cases a year. Out of those, 82% of those result in a change of plea. Hmm. And that's a tremendous saving for the courtroom. But for me, it means that these young people who are being abused are not having to go into court or the fear of having to go into court to give evidence against their father or their mother's boyfriend or, or whomsoever else it may be. And it's part of my science legacy for not being able to help that young girl on that first case. And I don't know what happened to her, but my hope is that somewhere, if I keep telling her story, maybe somewhere, and I know her name and I'll never, I'll never reveal it to anybody else. If she was ever to get in touch with me and say what her name is, then I would know it's her. And I want to be able to tell her the enormous amount of good that we've been able to do as a result of her bravery when she was a teenage girl, which I think is, is you know, it was just outstanding what she did. This has been such a fascinating conversation. 
I'm I'm so glad you've taken the time to talk with me about this. One one wonderful story after another. You're an extraordinary communicator as well oh, as bless me. you. I'm, extraordinary... I'm talking to the master in this field, no. Alan. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> But to make it even more fascinating, we always end the show with seven quick questions. Oh, heavens, you didn't warn me of this. Okay. Oh, okay. But they're, they're roughly related to communication, and they're not okay. embarrassing. They're, but they always <laughs> turn out to be kind of interesting. Are you game? Are you really? I'm game. You know I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number one, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, my goodness me, you didn't say that'd be this hard. I really <laughs> wish that I understood life. So I understand death. So I understand death as being the cessation of life. But what I don't understand and would love to understand is what life actually is, that moment at which there is that concept of what life is. I know that death is when it ends. I just wish I knew when it begins. Okay, next. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Very carefully and very gently, um, unless they're a lawyer. Because then if they're a lawyer, I get a great deal of satisfaction out of being completely and utterly blunt about it. Because I, I hate being in the courtroom so much that I like to be able to turn those tables a little bit. But I think if you are a good communicator, there are ways to be able to get your opinion across and to perhaps make people think that that perhaps they have to reassess. There will always be those who will never change their opinion, irrespective of what kind of communication you have. They will stick to the facts, right or wrong. Um, but I also think sometimes, you know, with, when life changes so much, we all have to be prepared to be a little bit more agile and a little bit more flexible. Mm. We used to think the world was flat. We know it isn't anymore. Sometimes what we think we knew, we have to reassess. And, and be kind about it. Next, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, it's usually about what do I want to do with my own death? Because I, I'm, I'm so much, you know, my, my entire life is steeped in death. And usually they will say, well, what are you going to do when you die? And I, I obviously spend a lot of time thinking about it because I have no fear of death. Uh, my grandmother was a great believer that death is your friend that walks alongside you every moment of your life. And if she's going to walk alongside you, then you better get to know her and make a friend out of her because she's not <laughs> going away. She's eventually going to be there at the end. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time with my family telling them what I want to do. I want my body to be donated to the anatomy department. I want to be dissected. And I want, if they will agree to it, for my my bones to be retained and if they could string my skeleton up, then I could be an articulated skeleton in my dissecting room, teaching for the rest of my death. And I think, you know, isn't that just great? I have no intention of ever stopping working, and death's not going to get in the way of that. I love that phrase, the rest of my death. <laughs> Never heard that before. That's great. Okay, number, number four, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, you're asking how could somebody stop me because I'm a compulsive talker. Um, yeah, but you're fascinating if oh, you are. Bless your heart. Um, it's that's a really challenging thing to do. Somebody who who wants to talk at you rather than to listen um, and wants to be very forceful. Often it's by throwing something completely left field. 
a question that they that they couldn't expect and couldn't anticipate, it will often stop them in their tracks. And usually, if it's quite personal, um, that will stop their train of thinking. So it's deflection more than anything. That's, that's really interesting. Okay, let's say let's say you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a really authentic conversation with that person? I think that depends on the person. So I do like to read people. Um, and I, I will spend a little bit of time watching people because so much of um, who you are is in the way, you, in your mannerisms, in your ability to hold eye contact, in your ability, in whether you're fidgeting, whether you're uncomfortable. So I would, I would read the room, first of all, and I would read the body language of the person. If they were nervous, I'd start with something really, really innocuous. It might be about what they're wearing. It might be about the food that we're eating. It will be a very gentle conversation to try and calm them down before we can move into other things. If there's somebody particularly arrogant, then I might <laughs> throw in something totally outrageous uh, in terms of a comment that will stop them in their tracks and, and, and make them question what I said. So I might be quite controversial just to get the conversation going and to sort of bring it back on track. But for me, it's about the person. The person dictates how you approach them in your communication. That's one probably at the heart of why you're such a good communicator. You're <laughs> focusing on you. the person who's with you instead of on what you want to say. I love that. What gives you confidence? I have uh, very low confidence, and I think that's quite true of a lot of people. I have a huge imposter syndrome. Um, so I'm convinced that there are people who are smarter than I am, who know better than I am, who are going to wake up one day and point at me and go, ah, you're a fraud. You really don't know anything you're talking about. And I think that lack of confidence um, and knowing that I have a lack of confidence is ironically what has given me confidence. So it is about knowing that I think I know nothing and therefore I'm very careful about what I say and how I say it. So my lack of confidence gives me confidence. Oh, great. That's a, that's a wonderful, circuitous <laughs> route you take. Last question. What book changed your life? Um, gosh, that, that's really hard. Changed my life. So many of them. Um, as, as a young age, it would have been the storytelling of Tolkien being able to, to read such an in-depth story that can transport you into another life that is utterly believable. So I think at different times, you read different books that change you. That was really important for me. There are some beautiful books written by Rachel Joyce, who talks about life's journey. And I suppose, you know, one, one of my, my sort of great loves is Richard Holloway. And Richard Holloway is the retired Bishop of Edinburgh. And he wrote a book very recently, well, a few years ago now, called Waiting for the Last Bus. And mm. it, it's about his preparation for his end of life because he's an elderly gentleman. And he just writes with such precision and such beauty and such heart that I think there are different books for different phases in your life that when you get to a crossroads, they take you down a path that you didn't think you would go. And that's the beauty of books. 
Boy, this has really been a revivifying conversation for oh, somebody who, so kind. who deals with people who are not vivified at all. <laughs> I really, really loved it. And, and I, don't, I don't know, in closing, I don't know what to call you now that you're a baroness. Do I call you? you, you but are for, you sure it's not your worship or your way, way upness or something well, like well, that? Well, I've said to my husband, providing he remembers that I am commander of all the winds and the tides, as long <laughs> as he remembers that, we'll be okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Great to see you again, Sue. And you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Sue Black is the Pro Vice Chancellor for Engagement at Lancaster University. From 2003 to 2018, she was Professor of Anatomy and Forensic Anthropology at the University of Dundee, which is where we met. Her work in Kosovo was recognized with many honors, including most recently a life peerage in Great Britain's House of Lords. That's when she became Baroness Black of Strome. She's written two books drawing on her experiences tending to the dead. All That Remains, A Life in Death, and Written in Bone, Hidden Stories and What We Leave Behind. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Paul Rudd, who's as enjoyable off-screen as he is on. Whether he's acting or just having a chat, he's connected. And I think that's because he's developed a fondness for a bit of the serious side of improvisation. I think when people talk about improvisation, and even improvising scenes when you're working on a film and, and comedy, it's, it's not really about the jokes. If you can think of one in the moment, it, great. But if you are really, if you're really connected with the person you're acting opposite, you have to kind of innately know, oh, this is where this is going. So I have to play this seriously to help them do what they're going to do. Paul Rudd, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Abby Vierick. She flies radio antennas weighing almost three tons on balloons tens of miles above the South Pole. She's hoping to spot an event she knows is very rare, the moment an invisible weightless particle strikes the ice after traveling billions of light years through space. We look for neutrinos from outer space. We look for what we call astrophysical neutrinos that come from presumably sources outside our own galaxies. So I like to think about them as the perfect messenger particle. They travel through the universe more or less unimpeded, meaning on their way here, it's very unlikely they'll interact with something. 
And so that means that you can get a really clear picture about the universe that's far away. So we were hoping to learn about how the highest energy sources in the universe work. Abby Vierig, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>